Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Um, Welcome to the Skylight Podcast. My name is Agnes. I work at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. We are a community bookstore. We've been around for 24 years at this point. Um, And one of the, among the many challenges of this last year, one of the blessings has been getting to expand the kinds of events we're able to do, the conversations we're able to have. Um, So I'm very excited today to be joined by Amelia Pang, whose book Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS letter and the hidden cost of America's cheap goods. Uh, it's just out from Workman Publishing. Um, Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer winning journalist has said that this is a moving and powerful look at the brutal slave labor camps in China that mass produce our consumer products. Um, Amelia Pang is an award-winning journalist who has written for publications such as Mother Jones and the New Republic covering topics ranging from organic import fraud to the prevalence of sexual violence on Native American reservations. In 2017, the Los Angeles Press Club awarded her first place in investigative journalism for her undercover reporting on the exploitation of smuggled immigrants who are recruited to work in Chinese restaurants. Amelia grew up in a Mandarin-speaking household in Maryland and holds a BA in literary studies from the New School. She lives near Washington, DC with her husband, an organic farmer. This is her first book. Um, Thanks so much for being here, Amelia. I'm excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Will you read a little bit from the book to start? Yes. Uh, so this takes this particular scene takes place um, after, uh, before a long time before Julie Keith actually found the SOS letter. So Masanjia, China, two thousand eight, four years before Julie found the letter. There was a window on the second floor of the workshop from which a paved road beyond the fence was visible. Cloaked by the shadows of trees, the empty road was barely discernible, but once soon saw it, he could not unsee it. He would steal glances outside every time he passed the window on the way to the toilet. The road was always desolate until one morning when someone rode by in a red electric rickshaw. Soon's heartbeat quickened as he stared at the human figure. He had been in the labor camp for so long that he sometimes forgot he was alive. When Soon first touched the gravestones his team had to make, he was surprised by their softness. It was only then that he realized they were decorations. A guard later told him the merchandise would be exported to countries celebrating a Western holiday that took place in the fall. It was a new concept for Soon. 
Most Chinese people did not celebrate Halloween. He and the other prisoners coated the foam with liquid latex before dipping it in black dye, which had a dizzying scent. They waited for the color to dry and harden. With a wet sponge, they scrubbed the foam to create irregularities that lent the gravestones a time-worn appearance. Smudging their faces with black paint as they wiped their sweat, they labored like this from four in the morning until 11 at night, their feet always damp from standing in pools of black water. The fastest prisoners produce up to 20 tombstones a day, but soon, with his worsening health, could only make five or six. The team was sometimes forced to stay up an entire 24 hours to meet production demands. Soon stowed moments of rest by closing his eyes while his hands continued the motion of scrubbing. Fragments of memories came to him when he used to buy his wife gifts, shirts, scarves, jewelry. She never seemed to care which colors he picked. As long as it's from you, she would say. The decrepit gray building where soon manufactured decorative gravestones used to house women too. By 2008, the female forced laborers were imprisoned in a separate newer building. But for decades before that, they ate in the same canteens as the men and experienced torture in adjacent rooms. There were still blood stains on the walls of what had been the women's torture room where those who would not submit to authority or change their political or religious beliefs were re-educated. The men in Soon's unit dreaded working at night. When their minds played tricks on them, they saw moving shadows and heard unexplained sounds. Some inmates claimed they could hear women sobbing, the ghosts of those who had killed themselves. Historically and presently, the women at Masinja labor camp experienced arguably worse torture and degradation than men. The guards would jam and twist toothbrushes up women's vaginas, pour chili powder into their genitals, and shock their breasts with electric batons. Then they gang raped their, then they gang raped their victims, who often vomited blood afterward. According to survivors, the women in the camp made uniforms for the Liaoning Forest Fire Prevention Department shirts for a South Korean company, and down coats for an Italian brand. But unlike the men who worked with feathers, the women did not have productive masks to wear. The clothing was exported under a commercial named, a commercial name called Xinyu Clothing Company Limited. Researchers from the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission later confirmed that the garments companies corporate address was the same as the labor camps. Um, so there's a story in Oregon that is sort of this, the kernel of this book. Will you tell us that story? Yes. Um, in 2012, an American suburban mom named Julie Keith opens up this brand new package of Halloween decorations from Kmart. And as she's tearing open a cellophane and taking out all the packaging waste, an SOS letter falls out from the political prisoner in China who had made and packaged this very product. So the book tells his story, how he ended up in a labor camp. Um, but it also takes a deeper look at the holes in our supply chain and 
you know, the deeply flawed ways that <clears throat> a lot of companies are auditing their Chinese suppliers. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of different factors that contributed to making it really easy for something that was manufactured in a labor camp in Liaoning, China to end up selling at a Kmart in Portland, Oregon. Well, and I, I there's obviously so much to talk about and I wanna talk more about the those supply chains and the consumer side of these things in a bit, but I wanna start with these labor camps. Um, I mean, they're well, words being used to describe these like gulags and slave labor, which it seems are not at all an overstatement. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these labor camps? Right, yeah. Um, so many of you have probably heard about the Uyghur re-education camps in Xinjiang, China at the moment, um, but the Uyghur camps are unfortunately not a new phenomenon. Um, that they're the worsening of, of an, a pre-existing forced labor system and the, and the rapid expansion of it. Um, but these labor camps have really existed uh, since the 1930s. Um, the earliest ones were these makeshift ones that were based off of Soviet gulags um, as the uh, Chinese Communist Party was gaining momentum and taking over. Um, of course, you know, the issue of forced labor existed way before the Chinese Communist Party uh, took over power. Um, you know, corvée labor was a, was a huge issue in ancient China. Um, and of course, it's an issue that's not limited to China at all. Um, but China currently has the largest forced labor system in the world, and they are still not so different from Soviet gulags in terms of the torture that people go through, in terms of the amount of political dissidents, civil rights lawyers, um, ethnic minorities, religious dissidents that end up in these kinds of camps. Um, and they are unfortunately producing a lot of goods for people like me and you. Can you, you just included a sort of a list of, of answer to this question, but who, who are the, some of the people who are in these camps? I mean, I know the Uyghur camps that have been in the news lately are um, religious minority, but who, who else is in, who else are the people who are um, in these camps? Absolutely, um, there is, there's a lot of underground Christians uh, because in China, the state controlled churches, they preach a very different kind of Christianity um, from what most Christians consider uh, Christianity. Um, at the end of the day, their allegiance has to always be with the government first and not so much with their religion. So if you want to, a lot of underground Christians feel like if you actually want to have faith, you've got to start your own informal church uh, in, um, in, a, in an apartment or something like that. And a lot of those end up getting caught uh, by the police and they end up in labor camps, uh, the people who attended them. Um, there's also the Falun Gong group, which has become quite controversial in recent years in the US. Um, but, and you know, that is problematic. That's another whole other issue um, that deserves to be its own book. Um, but what I think what a lot of people don't realize about Falun Gong is that 
when it was banned in the 90s in China, they afterward they became a pretty influential uh, democracy activism group almost like they could organize very, very well and very effectively in terms of protests and just setting up setting up different kinds of uh, media and ways to disseminate an alternative information to what the Chinese government, countering what the Chinese government was saying about them. And, you know, Chinese human rights groups have told me that they they tend to work with Falun Gong. Uh, some of them work with Falun Gong uh, to, you know, help disseminate information to um, people in China who are looking for news about Chinese democracy and things like that. So they've played an interesting role in China in that regard. And a lot of them have ended up in labor camps or over the years. Um, and of course, then there's also ethnic minorities like Uyghurs, Tibetans, um, and different kinds of Turkic ethnic minorities like the Kazakhs, um, who just, you know, the Chinese government really, really wants to force assimilation for these people. And they, and if, if, if they feel like they're not learning the Chinese language well enough, or they're still pretty religious, um, or if they have any tendency to maybe want independence from China and start um, have their own culture celebrated more, have a safe space to celebrate their ethnicity and culture, these kinds of things, um, land people in labor camps. Um, and there's um, civil rights lawyers who defend the people in these camps often end up in camps themselves, or they, you know, and pro-democracy activists, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to hear some, if a lot of the Hong Kong activists end up doing forced labor. Um, many of them um, have been arrested and sentenced. Um, and, you know, it's just a really long list of all different yeah. kinds of people that end up there. Do people, how long do people end up, to, is there a pattern of how long people serve in these camps? Is it, they sort of end up for an indeterminate period of time or are people just there for a year or two? It really depends. Um, for a lot of my book focuses on re-education through labor camps, um, which the sentence ten was usually two years or two and a half years, but it could be arbitrarily extended at any point. Uh, people die in the camps all, all the time during their sentence there. Um, and these are really informal sentences that the police department gives. They're, they don't even have a trial to go, they don't have, they don't go to court. They don't have access to lawyers. It's just kind of arbitrary and the numbers do vary depending on whatever the police feel like sentencing. How, how many, how many people would you say now are like, as we speak are in, how big are the camps or how big is this? It's really hard to say. I mean, we don't have any big, one big source that has all of the accurate data because the Chinese government doesn't release accurate data on this. So we only have bits and pieces of data coming from NGOs and individual journalists. Um, I think the most, we can make a conservative estimate that there's, there's millions and there's maybe, there's at least 1000 camps, um, different kinds of camps, but you know, a lot of human rights activists believe the numbers are much, much higher. We just can't document the, the, the data in any, it's, it's really hard to document. Yeah, yeah of course. 
So this is in part a story about these camps and their existence in China. It's also a story about the US and our culture of consumption. Can you talk a little bit about that side of the equation and how, how tightly tied to these camps uh, all of us are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I was first working on this story, I thought the issue <clears throat> lied more with the Chinese government's policies and um, perhaps, <clears throat> you know, corporate greed, um, the fact that corporations are sourcing from these kinds of places. Um, but I think another, but I, what I found out through my reporting was that actually the way that consumers like us buy products and support companies also plays a huge role in terms of influence how corporations source from these companies. <clears throat> I mean, source from these factories. Um, for example, <clears throat> let's say we buy a lot of H&M hats and then the newest color just came out and we, and H&M was able to produce the most trendy color at a super quick pace um, and everyone's buying it now. How did H&M actually make that shift in production to be able to produce the latest, let's say lime green popular color on such short notice? Maybe that hat was supposed to be in order for black, uh, black hats, but now lime green is the it color all of a sudden because a celebrity wore it. Uh, so they had to make a very, very rapid shift to shift to just change all the colors of their hats that they had for an order they had already put in. Um, but so what that does when they make a last minute huge production change like that, um, and I'm just using H&M as an example. I don't have, um, I'm not saying they had this specific issue with their hats, um, but it, when a company like that makes a last minute production change without giving the factory a realistic deadline to make the hats and to make the changes, um, then that factory often has no choice but to secretly and illegally subcontract the work to some really shady places, um, including prison, prison labor and uh, because if they miss their deadline, they would be charged a huge fine most of the time, uh, a fine so large for some of them that they basically end up paying the company to take their product and keep this contract with them. Um, and they don't end up making any profit to sustain their, their workers. Um, so that's a, that's a huge factor um, in why factories are outsourcing to secretly outsourcing to labor camps and other places like them. Um, it's just a unsustainably fast uh, production demands that corporations ask from them um, as a result of consumers uh, wanting them and supporting corporations that are able to produce the latest trends at an extremely fast rate. And, and then the issue doesn't lie with um, only with fashion you know, there's issues with technology and um, basically every industry um, I, I has this risk. 
Um, and another factor that contributes to um, having a factory's decision to outsource work to forced labor in the first place is the unsustainably cheapness of the price that the company demands uh, from them to make the product. Uh, you know, a lot, there's a lot of Chinese factories and they're really competitive. Um, it's really hard for them to get a, like a big brand to sign a contract with them. They, they, they compete heavy, viciously with each other to try to get a big contract with a famous brand like H&M who can issue large production orders for them. And, you know, if H&M says, you know, I just want it for this price and that's all I'm paying for. If you're not going to uh, make it for me, I can find another factor who can reach my price. Um, then they will, if they can't actually pay their workers the legal wages, um, then they have to subcontract. If they did, if they don't have enough money to, to make the product um, themselves um, with their actual workers, then they have to subcontract uh, to alternatives like labor camps to, you know, be able to help do the full production. So I'm, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but that's generally to help readers understand why our purchasing choices often influence um, certain factors that compel uh, factories to outsource work to labor camps. And it seems like those things are so deeply ingrained now in just how we expect the world to function, that we can get what we want very quickly and that we can get it for, we're always pushing for a cheaper price and can we, how cheaply can we, I mean, it just feels like that's so deeply baked into um, Americans and I'm sure a lot of Western European ideas about how the world is supposed to, to function. Um, so do you, where do you feel like there's, where do you feel like there's the most leverage for change to happen? Is it on the level of individual consumers? Is it in the, in the level of um, these larger companies taking a, making a visible stand against producing in this way? Is it, is it about policy and sort of, you know, yeah, what, what are the, where do you see, where do you see leverage points in, in this? I think all three have big leverage points, but probably the biggest is consumers. I mean, if we just leave companies to corporate, big multinational corporations to leave it up to them to make the right decision, I, I don't feel confident that any change will happen. Um, for example, in a year ago, in February 2020, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute released a very, very well-written report with lots of hard evidence um, that proved there are 82 big transnational brands that are using Uyghur, specifically Uyghur forced labor. Um, they base this off of uh, records and you know, survivors interviews and even uh, just the state-owned media of, of Chinese state-owned media that's been trying to reframe these camps as a good thing that's helping people get jobs. Um, so it's pretty hard evidence. Uh, yet um, more than a year later, um, or about a year later, it, it, very few of those companies have actually dropped the 
the suppliers that were found to be using Uyghur forced labor. Um, and nothing, they've not, haven't been held accountable in any real meaningful way. Consumers haven't held them accountable. Government policies haven't held these companies accountable. And so just a lot of them just simply didn't really make any changes. Um, so yeah, okay, our question was what we can actually do about it. Um, so I think I would say one starting point is to go look up the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and see what the 82 brands are. And if any of them are brands that you have shopped at or that you, you like and you like to buy things from, um, just take a moment to reach out to them on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, and just, you know, point it out that they are, are they still sourcing from this supplier? Um, if not, they need to drop them ASAP. And this is the issue that your, your target market cares about. I mean, I feel like this is why um, your book is so important. I mean, I feel like we, both in reminding us of the extent and the horror of the problem and also reminding us of the possibility of having agency and pushing away from pushing away from it. I think it's very easy to get complacent and to feel like these things are just sort of are the way they are and to not, to forget that that's, that that's, you know, that's another form of participation in our society, the choices we make as consumers. I think that's very well put. Thank you for that um, summary. Yeah, I mean, if, yes, maybe we can't oh, stop all forced labor in China, um, but, we, I think it's important to know the reason why the crackdown on Uyghurs happened in the first place. And it was deeply, deeply uh, connected to trade, um, which I can go into later. But if we, can use, if, if we can use our purchasing decisions to encourage our companies to pull out of certain factories and have it actually make an impact on trade for China, then it's, that's a really powerful tool to um, that will compel the Chinese government to rethink and revise their policies towards Uyghurs. I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the process of reporting this, but I I would love to hear if you're willing to say what you said. These camps first started appearing in the 30s with the rise of the Communist Party, but but what would you say some of the factors were that led to the creation of these Uyghur re-education camps that you were just alluding to? Yes, um, so. One main policy was the <clears throat> Belt and Road Initiative. And that is a trillion dollar economic development strategy that China launched in 2013. Um, and what that is, is it's a, it connects, it basically opens up China, connects them to, to the Middle East and West Asia and Europe to do, to make trading more, trade more easy with, with uh, these huge, regions. And I mean, actually they do, they do the belt, the entire belt and road is belt and road initiative covers way more than that. But one of the central and key transportation hubs is in Xinjiang and Xinjiang connects uh, China to the Middle East, West Asia and Europe. And because it's going to be, Xinjiang is an area, uh, Xinjiang is where the Uyghurs most of them are. And since that area is a huge, huge transportation hub for the Belt and Road Initiative um, with a lot of logistical importance, 
um, it's just kind of too big to fail. They don't, the Chinese government's really afraid that the Uyghurs might have some small scale protests um, due to the conditions of their lives in Xinjiang over the last dec few decades. Um, and, and so they really want to keep everyone in line and make sure they're just all either, either detained or you know, too scared to even try anything uh, in order to protect their investments in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, a turning point in terms of just the spike in the number of arrests uh, that were happening in Xinjiang, like completely arbitrary arrests, was in 2017. And 2017 also happened to be the year that China put an extra $66 billion in Xinjiang infrastructure. Um, so a lot of the developments with the crackdown on Uyghurs have been closely aligned with the economic spending for the Belt and Road Initiative. Since really that phrase, too big to fail, it's pretty chilling to hear just to know how much that's shaped the policy in the US in the last yeah. policy in the US too. So it's just like that logic of fear just seems like it really can't continue to <laughs> operate our world where we build these things and have these expectations that really can do nothing but cause suffering. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, important to remember that these things are driven by consumer demand on the back end and also on the front end in a certain way, like that the fact that those investments are being made um, is because of an expected demand for a certain level of production and a certain, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of repeating what you said, but it's pretty tightly tangled. Um, yeah. Will you say, so you've reported, I mean, this book is an incredible feat of reporting and you've reported across a lot of different beats. Would you talk a little bit about how, whether this feels like it's continues a thread from earlier reporting work you've done or whether this feels like a new, a new chapter in your work as a journalist? Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminded me a little bit of going undercover to write about Chinese restaurants, um, uh, where I posed as an undocumented Chinese immigrant to see exactly how much payment they would offer me and what kind of hours I'd have to work. And they were pretty egregious conditions. Um, you can read about it in a Truth Dig article. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, get some water. Yeah. I was in 2017, right? That that. Yeah. Okay. And so when I went to China to do reporting, it was undercover in some sense uh, too, because I posed as a business person from overseas who wanted to look at the camps and um, potentially source from them. Uh, and so I visited some, and you know, went to the actual sites and talk to the employees and guards around around the camps and they basically openly admitted to me that these place these facilities um, have people working in them and and they are prisoners they the uh, one one facility was called a drug detox center um, but during my entire conversation with uh, the employees on their work there, they just kept referring it to a prison, a prison, a prison over and over again. And 
And they said, absolutely, you can, we make a lot of products, we can show you around. There's a lot of facilities all over this area, you know, you just, they were just extremely welcoming and, and like oddly professional. It, it was clearly their, not their first time communicating with someone who wanted to buy products from them overseas. Um, and so I, yeah, and, and it just didn't look like a drug detox center at all. You know, there were these barbed wires and uh, you don't see the actual detainees going in and out or getting really any recreational time. Um, Human Rights Watch did a great report on what are what, what are the experiences that people who end up in these drug detox centers. And for the people who are actually drug addicts, they, they get no support, no mental health support or services or any kind of individualized care to help them with addiction. It's just simply manufacturing work, that's it. Um, and it's, it's, it's just egregious conditions and extremely, extremely long hours. Um, it, it's, it's forced labor, it's a labor camp. These people yeah. were never tried or never had to go to trial for anything. They just arbitrarily got put in there um, a lot of the times. Um, anyway, so I hung around these camps for a while and I would follow the trucks that left these camps, the freight trucks that were coming in and go every two hours or so. They were very active. Um, and just to see exactly which normal manufacturers they were working with and had relationships with. And they went to all kinds of factories um, and that exported to the US and all over the world really, um, including one that made school supplies uh, and um, pet nylon pet products, like nylon pet collars. Like it was just such a wide range of different kinds of products that were made in these manufacturers. Um, and if you look at the customs records, it shows exactly what the products were that they exported to the US and when. And a lot of the names of these products uh, are selling on places like Amazon and Target. And you know, Amazon is a place that doesn't really audit their their Chinese suppliers. I mean, they say we aim to audit them, but that's about all they say. They don't really publish um, audit reports about what they found in their factories or, or what kind of audits they do or how many audits uh, uh, they've done to specifically not, to specifically discourage forced labor from being used. Like they, they just, don't, um, it's just, if, it, if this product is being sold on Amazon, I don't feel confident that Amazon did everything they could to, um, to make sure forced labor wasn't involved. What were some of the most challenging parts of the reporting to do? What would you say the, what are your, your... You know, I was surprised, actually, I thought it would be more challenging to get information out of the guards and the people who work there. But I, I was really surprised that it wasn't. Um, they, it's an open secret in the industry that ex people, exporters connect with them all the time to buy products. They openly admit to you, they're not even really hiding it. Um, you know, like you just show up and they will openly talk to you about it because they talk about it all the time with business people. Um, and then, so I called a lot of them as well. And, and every single one of them basically said, 
yeah, I can transfer you to our sales department. Hold on. You know, they all had a sales department and nobody said, oh, we don't export these um, um, or we don't, we don't actually make any products here. Um, so it was actually really easy to, to get evidence that, that these labor camps are making goods and they're exporting a, a lot of them. Um, so if, if I could do this as an individual, um, these corporations with all of their resources absolutely can find out a lot more than what I was able to, um, but just they don't really have an incentive to, nobody's really asking them to per se. So, so this is where we as consumers can, can, um, can do something about it. My book does list like specific things that you can ask corporations to do uh, or to include in their transparency pages. Um, yeah, so. Well, I encourage everyone to take, um, yeah, to get your copy and to, to take a look. At, it's, it's obviously much more to the story than we can cover today. Um, I, this is both sometimes is an awful question, but I'm also just curious. And are you, what's next for you? Or what's what's on your, what's, I feel like it's an awful question because it's like your book is, is here and this is a huge, that hopefully these conversations will continue and that you get to devote some energy to continuing to advocate and, and share this story. But what's, is there anything that's on your back burner that's in the back of your mind um, for yeah. what the next project might be? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely want to write more about what's happening to the Uyghurs. There's a lot of, um, <clears throat> it's a really underreported issue because, okay, unlike the other types of labor camps in China, the Uyghur re-education camps are really hard to visit and really hard to get information out of because it's just so high profile right now. Everyone's writing about them and the Chinese government really wants to put their resources into hiding them. Uh, so there's still a lot we don't know about the scale of the camps um, and the, so and just what other kinds of experiences the detainees are actually having there. And we know there's torture, we know they're making a lot of goods, but there's just a lot more details that we are still trying to get. Um, that was a heavy sigh of thinking about the state of things right now. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, the book is, as we said, Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods by Amelia Pang. Um, we are uh, available for online orders and orders over the phone. You can get your copy through us at Skylight um, or wherever else books are sold, your local independent bookstore. Um, thank you so much, Amelia. It's really, uh, these stories are, are brutal and really important. And also the fact that there's maybe a way to start chipping away at them is a source of hope. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.